back east, our family, my wife and our three children, we went back to, um, to Pennsylvania. We went to Washington, D.C., went down to Atlanta was where our final stop was. And we visited some friends who live in Atlanta. And um, while we were there, we thought it would be fun. They had two boys, and we've got three children, and it, we thought it would be fun to go out. There was a lake close to their house, and uh, they had a boat. And so we thought we'd take the kids out and go fishing because you don't get to do that too terribly much. And for some reason, fishing at the Santa Ana Lakes along the 91 freeway just doesn't seem like fishing to me. Um, but I'm sure that would be fun to go there. But anyway, uh, so we thought we'd take them fishing, and we did. We went fishing. They had a gorgeous lake, and Georgia's just a pretty place, and they live outside of uh, outside the city about 40 miles in the suburbs, and so there's just some really gorgeous places there. So we took them fishing, and the kids were having a blast. Every one of them were catching fish. This place was unbelievable. They were sitting on a little pier, and they just were throwing their lines in. They were catching fish. Every one of them, except for our youngest daughter, who was six years old at the time. Everyone else was catching fish. She wasn't catching anything. And she was getting bummed. Have you, ever, have you been on a trip like that? It's like, you just think, what have I done wrong, God? Is there, is there some sin in my life I need to confess? You know? She's six years old. She didn't, even, she didn't think that, but she was wondering, what did I do? It's like going in the bank and getting in the wrong line. Yeah, you always do. It's like you try to second guess yourself. Okay, I was going to get in that one. Ah, get in this one. Huh? Maybe no one noticed that I switched over to here. And sure enough, you get stuck for another 20 minutes in the slowest line. Well, she thought the same thing. She thought, well, the reason that she wasn't catching anything was because she was on the wrong side of the pier. And so she got ticked off at her brother because he was catching fish, so she asked Ryan to trade places with her. And so she moved to that side of the pier. He didn't want to do it because he thought somehow or another that's where the fish were, but everyone was catching them everywhere. So she moves over to the other side of the pier where he was sitting. He caught four or five fish in like 10 minutes, and so she sits down, and she's sitting there. 20 minutes later, she's still sitting there. Now she's starting to get a little tear in her eye. Why am I catching Everyone's yelling what a great time they're having. The fish are flying all over the place. And uh, so I went over and I started to talk to her. And uh, what do you say? And uh, so I said, well, you're not having too much luck, are you? Oh, that was a pretty obvious statement. That was an introduction. It's kind of like the stuff I'm doing right now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make a point eventually. But, um, so I said, well, have you checked your bait? And she had this look on her face like, check my bait. <laughs> so, well, let's check your bait. And so we reel in our line, and, and there's a hook on the end, and there's no bait. And I said, well, did you feel the rod go like this? Did you ever feel it? No. Well, did you ever have any bait on there at all? No. <laughs> I said, well, why not? I said, because that's gross. That's gross. She didn't want to put a worm on her hook because that was gross. So she just thought she could throw it in. And I went, well, you know, you're not going to catch anything without any bait. So she went over and, she, and I said, well, here's a worm. She goes, I don't want to touch a worm. I, well, I offered to put it on, but I was trying, you know, trying to get her to understand what was going on here. And so she said, well, I'll just put this on. So, well, what's that? Well, she had her lunch with her and she wanted to put a piece of orange on there because you can put a little orange on there and you don't get worm guts on you when you put orange on there. <laughs> You know, and the guys were loving it. It's like worm guts. This is fishing. This is great. You know how guys are, right? And she's like, I'll put an orange slice on there, you know, with a little twist of lime or something. You know what I mean? And so I said, no, that's not going to work. You have to, you, have to put, you have to put something that the fish like on there. And it was starting to dawn on her that she wasn't going to catch anything with a hook, and she wasn't going to catch anything with something that the fish didn't like. And I thought, boy, you know, that's fascinating when you really think about it, because we're going to talk about fishing today. I know some of you are going, that's gross. 
But it isn't. It's going to be great. In fact, you got, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Because believe it or not, this section that we're going to talk about has to do with fishing. It has to do with fishing. It has to do with using the right bait to catch the catch. And I think that it's going to be fascinating to you, as it is to me, to consider what's being shared with us as far as this whole concept is concerned. She was never going to catch anything with a, with a shiny hook. It looked pretty, but it wasn't going to do the job. She had to use something that attracted the fish. And I, you've been called a lot of things by me. But let me just get this straight right from the top. You are not the fisherman in this story. You be the fish. <laughs> We're all the fish. So you've got a whole different role to consider. I know being called sheep really blesses you sometimes, but uh, this one's even going to be better. Picture yourself. Just go like this. Everyone, just for a minute, go. <laughs> Are you that? They won't do that. Okay. Well, anyway. Just trying to get you in the mood. Start thinking like a fish. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of, of God is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God, he will abide forever. In this section of Scripture, John warns us that there will be some lures or bait that is going to be used and thrown before every one of us throughout our life. There's going to be three lures that he's talking about, or bait, if you, if you would prefer that to use it in the context of what we're talking about as far as fishing. But there's going to be three lures that are used in our lives to be thrown in front of our face to attract us to it, to divert us away from what God wants us to do in life. That's what he's warning us about in this section of this passage. And so what we need to think about is he's telling us about temptations that are going to be brought before you, that are brought by the world system that we live in. You remember, the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, generically speaking, there's a way that seems right to all of us. But the end of that is destruction. And so there's two ways to live. There's God's way to live, and then there's the world or the system that we live in, that way to live. So you have two choices. One is God's, one is the world that we live in. So he's saying that the world, since the world is in opposition to God, the world's ways are not God's ways. God says our th his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are different than our ways. So we need to understand what God's ways are because it's not a natural thing to understand God's ways. We have, to, we have to learn about him. We have to come into a relationship with him. We have to spend some time with him. We have to converse with him. We have to, to uh, respond to what he tells us. And so he's saying that there's, that's God's ways. But that's not the way we're used to living. We're used to living in the world, you know, the 8 to 5 or, the, or, or whatever you want to call it, the 8 to 5, 5 day a week, work a day world where every one of us find ourselves on a daily basis. That's the world that we're used to living in. And that's the world that influences our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our desires, our goals and our purposes. And so the world, according to the Bible, is a system that is in direct conflict with God's ways. We live in such a world that is an enemy of God. God says one thing, the world says something else. We need to understand the difference between what God says and the world says. Direct opposition. 
So the point that he's making is, since this world that we live in is in direct opposition to the ways of God, the philosophies, the attitudes, the goals, the purposes, we need to understand this very clearly. You can't love this world system and still love God. Why not? Because the two are in opposition to one another. How can you love one when God says do it this way and the world says do it the exact opposite way? How can you say you love God and the world? You can't serve two masters. You're going to have to live one way or the other. And so a lot of us are walking a fence trying to please the world and trying to please God. And you can't do it. And if you've ever walked on a fence, and I have, and you've ever slipped, and one leg goes on one side and one leg goes on the other side, it's an experience that you'll remember for a long time. <laughs> and that's what happens to many of us walking the fence, trying to do both, trying to please everybody, and you can't do it. And so there are some basic requirements that are necessary according to uh, what we've started to study, that, that John clearly lays out as far as if we're ever to grow spiritually. If you ever want to, to please God in the way that you live, then there are some things that he shares with us as we go through it. The basic requirement for growing is that we stop loving the world. The basic requirement for growing is that we stop loving the world. It's impossible, as I've already stated, to love the world that's in opposition to God and to love God too. Absolutely impossible. The two are enemies of one another, and it just doesn't work. So it says if you want to grow, then you need to stop loving the world. The assumption is that we will love the world because the world, listen to me, and we're going to see this, the world says the right things that we want to hear. The world system says basically this, please yourself and to hell with everybody else. That's the world we live in. And we see it all around us. This evidence is overwhelming. And I laugh when people say, well, you know what? The world's really getting better. Well, what news are you listening to? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, what vacuum are you living in? The world's not getting better. The world's getting worse. Pick up the paper. Look around you at your office. Look around you in the environment that you find yourself in. Listen to the news. This world's not getting better. We're kidding ourselves if we think so. So he says that the natural thing for us to do is to love the world because the world says what we want them to hear. We want to hear, hey, if I want to leave my spouse, I want to hear that it's okay. If I want to do something else, I want to hear that it's all right. And so the world caters itself or gears itself to tickling our ears in areas that we want to be reinforced to please ourselves. It's a whole different situation. And so what he says is that we need to stop loving the world. That's the first requirement. If you're going to grow in your walk with God, you've got to stop loving the world and you need to start loving the word. See, that's really the key. So he said that the second thing that we need to realize is if, if, if you're going to stop loving the world, then you need to understand what is in the world, right? And that's what he goes through and he lays out. He says there's three things in the world. And let's, let's look at them from the standpoint of these are lures or fishing bait, okay? Lures or fishing bait. And what we've got is we've got a fisherman in each one of our lives, the Bible says. He, he's called the adversary, our enemy, Satan, the devil. Whatever you want to say, the Bible teaches he's very real. And we've got that enemy who wants to stop us from growing spiritually. And so look at him for a moment. He's the fisherman. Jesus says that he would be the fisher of men. And the thing is that what Satan wants to do is he's the destroyer of men. He wants to kill people every chance that he gets. So what he does is he's got this fishing rod. And he goes like this. 
Oh, lust of the flesh. That's the first bait that he casts out. And see, if the lust of the flesh doesn't work for you, what's a fisherman, what is a fisherman dedicated to do? What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is amazing to me. I'm asking the easy ones right now. We've got to get over this little hurdle that we've come across. What is a fisherman dedicated to do? Oh, thank you, thank you. The, at least the majority of people said catch fish. I don't have a clue what the rest of you are mumbling. <laughs> that's what I said. I know. That's why I said that. The fishermen are dedicated to catch fish. Is there any fishermen in here? Oh, there's like, well, I know this is not a good area to ask that question. Because <laughs> you don't want to admit, I go to Santa Ana Lakes all the time. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that. All right, if there's, uh, fishermen are dedicated to catching fish. And if they throw one bait in and it's not working, they change baits, right? And if it's not working in this season, a different bait works in a different season. And if you're all around the year kind of fisherman kind of guy, then you know in the summertime you use certain bait. In the wintertime you use certain bait. When the water certain temperature you use certain bait. You sometimes fish off the top, you sometimes fish off the bottom. If you're a fisherman, you do whatever it takes to catch fish. Guess what? Satan's a fisherman. He does whatever it takes to catch fish. And if the lust of the flesh lure doesn't work in your life, then he throws out the lust of the eye lure to work in your life. And if the lust of the eye lure doesn't work in your life that particular season, then he throws out the, the pride of life lure. And he just keeps on casting. And he keeps on casting. And he keeps on casting until you finally take the bait. That's what he's warning us against in this particular section. So in order to understand it, let's just take them one at a time and understand each one of these lures. The lust of the flesh. By definition, it deals with our affections. It's something that we talked in depth about last Second thing, second lore that's cast out there, the lust of the eyes has to do with appearances. The lust of the eyes, right, has to do with appearances. Lust of the eyes. Make it look good. How many of you are in advertising? What's the whole goal of advertising? I work with newspapers all the time and advertise a product, right? What's the first thing that they say? Got to have eye appeal. That's the buzzword for advertising. What does real estate people have to say? What do they call it? Got to have curb appeal. You know, isn't that it? You've got to be able to drive up to the house, look at that thing, and it has to catch your eye like that because that's the impression that they want to make. You've got to open that advertisement in that magazine. It's got to catch your eye like that because that's the impression that they want to make. It's got to have eye appeal. It's got to have curb appeal. We've heard this said, feast your eyes on this. Well, what do you think it means? Hey, once you catch it in your eyesight, the eyes are the gateway to the mind. And once you get that in your eyes, boy, that's where you're grabbed. And it has to do with um, our acquiring nature our acquiring nature. That lure is thrown out. Okay, so you're not struggling with the lust of the flesh. Okay, well how about this area? Bang, the lure is thrown out. Reeled in a little bit? Oh, you know what? Let me catch this with your eye. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Because it, this, this is not a new problem. Genesis chapter 3. The media bombs our senses. The world bombs our senses with, hey, you know what? Here it is. Here it is. Look at it. Looks good, doesn't it? Makes you want it, doesn't it? That's what they want to do. What do you think they wanted to make look good? So you buy it. I mean, that's why they do it. 
Genesis chapter 3. Eye appeal. Curb appeal. I think the tree in the garden had curb appeal. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty, there's our fisherman, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we go. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. And both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made loincloth coverings for themselves, and they went and they hid in the garden to hide from the presence of God. Why? Because it caught her eye. It looked good. The world says, it looks good, go for it. The Word says, don't touch it. You know what the most amazing thing to me is? They had everything else at their disposal. Every other tree in the garden they, were, they had access to, they could enjoy, they could enjoy anything else but that one thing. And isn't there something about human nature that when you tell somebody you can have everything but that, you don't want anything else but that? Isn't that the truth? I don't care about any of those other trees now. I want the one that I can't have. That's the way we are. You can have anything but that. Well, I'll take that. No, no, you, you missed that. It's kind of like doing a survey last week. Okay, you can have, you can have these times, but any, anything else you can't have but these two times. Well, I want uh, to stay at 930. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> well, that's real good. Let me just tell you. That's not an option, but I appreciate the feedback. And the reason it's not an option, and the reason it's not an option, by the way, is because we're just one small part of the program going on here. And uh, the hours are 830 and 1030. The reason the hours are 830 and 1030 is because the city of Santa Ana won't give us an occupancy permit for the new building unless you have the proper amount of time between services to make sure that you don't have a mess out here from traffic. So that's why you got a little extra half an hour. So just a little plug in there for something else. Anyway, <clears throat> but that's it. <clears throat> so the point is, <clears throat> excuse me, we see it, we want it. And we go after it. Ecclesiastes 2.10, Solomon said this. He said, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8, he said that the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is never satisfied with hearing. The senses will never be satisfied in the way that we think that they will. Basically, what Solomon said was this. You know what? Everything I saw, I wanted it. And if I wanted it, I got it. Because he had the means to do it. Because he could afford it. So he did it. The world says, good for you, Solomon. You work hard. You've got money. You, don't, you only go one once in life. Go for it. Go for the gusto. That's great. We're happy for you. You know what the word of God says? That all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Everything that he went after was chasing little pretty soap bubbles. It all looked good to the eye, but when he grabbed it, it had no substance. It had nothing to offer. That's the lust of the eyes. Malcolm Forbes. Think about it. The lust of the eyes. You see it, you want it. Right? Malcolm Forbes. He had the largest collection of eggs. Eggs! Are you listening to me? Eggs! 
That's right, eggs. He had a collection of eggs. What will somebody do with a collection of eggs? Please help me understand this. <laughs> and ten soldiers. What do you do with a collection of ten soldiers? Play with them? Malcolm called his buddies over and they played army? What is the deal here? He collected them. I don't know. Stamps. Read a great article about Bruce McNall, the owner of the Kings in, uh, in Sports Illustrated. He started out collecting coins. That's where he made his millions of dollars. Coins. We buy into this. This coin's worth $38 million. This baseball card's worth $480,000. What a scam. <laughs> and everyone believes it. Why? Because you can have every other baseball card in the world, but that one, you can have that one for $480,000. <coughs> Gotta have it. I'll pay half a million. And the guy walks right with 480 going, oh, this is unbelievable. And that's where this whole article is going, this is unbelievable. What a great country we live in. The lust of the eyes, whew, the fishermen now out there reeling us in and we're just going for it. Eggs and tin soldiers and, and coins and stamps. Oh, God, help us. This is amazing. This is amazing. Here's a good one. This is, um, this is a book that I got. It's uh, very secular in view, but that's right. I'll share it with you because sometimes I am too. <laughs> but anyway... This is an unauthorized biography of Doris Duke. You know who Doris Duke is? You know who James Buchanan Duke is? Yeah, the old people will. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what happened. All the young people were going, no. The old people were going, oh, yeah, I remember. But anyway, um, the guy had a lot of money. That's, that's basically it's Duke, Duke University. You've heard of Duke University? Oh, yeah, I've heard of Duke University. Oh, I didn't know it was the same Duke. I know, some of you thought it was John Wayne's University, right? <laughs> a scary group of people we're dealing with here. Anyway, so listen to this. This is an unauthorized biography of Doris Duke, who was the daughter of James Buchanan Duke, who was uh, an electric mogul and tobacco mogul and all that. Anyway, her accountant said this. said, it took 5,333 8x5 cards, which is about half, a sh half of one of these sheets. Okay, 5,333 of these, or computer screens, which are about the same size, for her accountant to account for the precious art objects housed in her five estates alone. That excluded all public displays. That was just in her houses. So the guy goes on, he says this, if you're still not convinced about the woman's wealth, think about this. What is meant by the word priceless? For example, what is the crypt of Buddha worth? <laughs> Obviously, you got a different, different viewpoint than I do on that, but... <clears throat> says Doris has what is purported to be the crypt of Buddha in among a fabulous collection, there's our keyword, of Buddhist artifacts housed in the coach barn at the Duke Farm. As if that isn't enough, she has an indoor tennis court covered with golden artifacts which are really a golden pavilion of imported oriental treasures bought in the early 1930s from Tibet, Thailand, and Cambodia. All of these treasures sit today at Duke Farm gathering dust and cobwebs says later, he goes on and says, she has been to every faraway place imaginable and has collected art treasures that are the envy of the world. Yet while her life has been rich and exciting on one hand, it has been meaningless and lonely on the other. That's where the lust of the eyes always leads, to cobwebs and dust. You've been there. Maybe you can't relate to 5,333 pages of artifacts, right? But you know what you can relate to? You saw that new car, you had to have it. Had it about, what, a couple weeks? Had to wash it for the first time. Kids spilled on it. The lust 
that smell went away, that luster, that gleam. Guess what? Lust of the eyes. Let you down again, didn't it? Guys get into relationships with people other than their spouses. Uh, gals do the same thing. Lust of the eyes attracts them. The appearance is all there. They get into it. And guess what? <clears throat> luster wears off. The luster wears off. You've all been there. We've all been there. And you probably go right now. That, that lure is out there in front of your face. And I don't know what it is. It's a car. It's a house. It's this. It's that. It's a person. Whatever. And the fishermen stand there smiling on the banks, just reeling it in and watching you start to chase it. Just watch you start to chase it. Getting ready to set the hook. See, that's the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes always leads to disappointment. It'll never do what it promises to do. Proverbs 27, 20 says this. The eyes, <clears throat> the eyes of man are never satisfied. And we've all been, oh, if we just have this house, I'll never want another house again. That's my lifetime dream. If we just have this business, I'll never want to do anything else again. My lifetime dream. If I just get this car, oh, honey, 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 I promise you that I'll never want anything else again. If I just get this ring, I just want that ring. It's the only ring that I ever want. As soon as I get that ring, you know, it used to be an engagement ring. As soon as I got that one, I'll never want another one. Oh, right. <laughs> gotcha. You know, so if I just get this outfit, I'll never want another outfit. If I get this, what is it? What is it that if you just have, you'll never want anymore? That's the world says. Go for it. It'll satisfy you. And the word says, no, it's not because the eyes of man are never satisfied. And regardless of how much wealth you've accumulated or how little or whatever in comparison, you have more today, most of us do, than we did yesterday. And we're still not satisfied with stuff. And that's just the way it is. I like this. This is a great quote. <clears throat> it amazes me how many things I've never given a thought to acquire that I've wanted after seeing him in the possession of someone else. <laughs> you guys like that? That's mine. That's an original. I didn't want to put my name on there because it sounded like a little egotistical. Plus, I wanted to see if you had a good response to it or not. <laughs> yeah, because that's the truth, isn't it? You never think about buying something. You go over to somebody's house and you go, oh, we should have one of those. Why? Because they do. You ever going to use it? Not the point. We should have it. They're not as smart as us. They don't work as hard as we do. Why can they have it and we don't have it? And, the reason, and you say they're not as smart as you, and the pre probably reason they have it is because they aren't as smart as you. So why don't you camp on that one for a little longer? <laughs> but that's the point. It's crazy. You know, the eyes just don't do it. The world system says, see it, want it, go for it, you deserve it. The word says, hey, wait a minute. Job 31, 1 and 2 says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I have made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look at things that aren't pleasing to God. I'm not going to look at things that are going to be unwise to obtain. I don't even want to see that. And I think that all of us should probably consider what we're looking at in our life. What are we looking at? What, what movies do we see? What magazines do we read? What pornographic material are we looking at? What benefit is coming of what we're looking at with our eyes? What good comes of it? If nothing good is coming of it, then don't look at it. That second look. We've all been there. You're driving down the road, somebody pulls up next to you and they look at you. You can look again. Then you can think, well, where is this going? There's no sense looking again. Great line in a movie I saw recently was uh, this, gal, this gal was looking at this particular guy and she was looking at him. You know what I mean by that? Okay, good. Some of you, do you remember what I mean by that? Well, 
Good. But she was looking at this guy. And you know what this guy, the first thing he said was, I'm married. I'm married. That was a great line. And ends that conversation real quick. Maybe. And maybe not. But the point is, what are we looking at? I think Psalm 119.37 says it best. Turn my eyes from vanity. Turn my eyes away from looking at vain things. What am I looking at? We need to look at that. Third thing, here's that third lore that's thrown out there, right? And that's the pride of life. The pride of life. It's thrown out. You know what this one is? This one's this. So what do you do for a living? That's how we promote it. So what do you do for a living? Because obviously your worth to society is based on how much money you make and what position that you hold some, somehow or another here on this earth. So we throw it out and we encourage it by saying, oh, and so what do you do? And so then we get all excited about it or whatever, as if somehow our value is equated or measured by the amount of money that we have, the possessions that we own, the title that we, that we have as well, the parking space, whatever. Somehow or another, we believe, and the world system promotes that saying, and that's how it gets us to do so many stupid things. If you compromise in this area, we'll give you this promotion. If you'll do this for us, we'll do this for you. And it's, a, and it's always give and take. But the problem for a Christian is it's always taking away from our integrity and our values. And it always erodes at the, at the very basis of which we operate as far as wanting to please God. The word says do this. The world says if you compromise that and do this, then we'll, we'll do something for you. We'll offer you something. God says, hey, do you love the world or do you love the word? If you love the word, then I'll take care of all your needs. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to, to compromise your walk with me. I'll take care of your needs. I know what they are. I made you. I know I, if I can take care of the birds of the sky, I can take care of you. So why in the world would you think you have to compromise somehow to get this deal to pay your bills? I'll make sure your bills are paid. You work hard. You work honest. You do what's right before me, and I'll take care of your needs. You don't need to start compromising in those areas. The world says, scratch mine, I'll scratch yours. doesn't matter what you give up in the process. And besides that, we're pretty foolish sometimes. Look at James chapter 4 for a second. We are real foolish if we think we're going to be around for a long time. James chapter 4. <clears throat> Some of us really get excited about who we think we are. And, and I, you know, I'm sorry, but I just haven't bought into all that yet. Because the way I see it is <laughs> that... We're just all creatures, and God's the creator. And if God's opened the door for you to do such and such in your business, then God bless you, that's great for you. And I'm happy for you. But 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, What do you have that God hasn't given you? Some of us get excited about our family backgrounds, and you know we're born with a silver spoon in our mouth, or my daddy was this, or my mama was that. And let me just tell you something. You're hurting yourself by, by believing all that. See, the world system's into that. The Rockefellers, the Dukes, Gettys. We throw out names, right? As if somehow names mean something. There's only one name that means anything as far as eternity is concerned, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are creatures, and God's a creator. And that's the point that he's trying to make here. James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, well, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. 
but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all your boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble because some of you really think you're really important. But the way I read this is, you're vapor. Well, I guess it's a matter of interpretation. Well, gee, I don't know. You're vapor. What that means is, guess what? James Buchanan Duke is dead. Doris Duke's going in his footsteps. Malcolm Forbes, with all the eggs that he had, didn't keep him around. The eggs just didn't do the trick. And neither will crystals, and neither will whatever else that you plan on hoarding up. It's all gone. It's gone. The pride of life. The pride of life says, you know what? You're important because of what you do. Let me just tell you what the Bible says. The Word of God says, you're important because of what Jesus did. That's all. And if you've got a position in this world, they don't get too hung up on it because guess what? It's on its way out. And that's what I want to, just, I want to share with you two more quick things. And that's John's reasons why we must not love the world. You know why he says not to love the world? Because it's contradictory to our love from God. For God, he says that, you know what? If you love the world, the love of God's not in you. You can't love this world system and love God because the two are in opposition. He also says that it's foreign to God himself. But the important thing that I want to get across, and maybe that will all catch on here, is that this world is temporary. This world isn't lasting. There have been 19 civilizations in the history of this world, and they're gone. I've been there. I've seen it. I've done that. I've been to Greece. I've walked along the Acropolis. I've looked at the Parthenon. I've seen the glory of Greece. Guess what? It's gone. Pollution's eroding it. It's falling apart. They try to continue to make it something so that people like us will go there and spend our money to look at something that's history, that's done, that doesn't mean anything. The civilization of Egypt. Go and look at their, the Sphinx. Go and look at, at the pyramids. Marvelous things, aren't they? The people who build them are dead. And most of them are inside there with all their stuff. And if they collected eggs, they're in there with them. <laughs> or tin soldiers or whatever it was. They're in there with them. It's gone. It's done. It's dead. The glory of the past is just that. It's past. It's over. It's done. Scientists all agree. They don't agree on the timing, but they agree on this. This world is dying. The sun is dying. The planet we're standing on is falling apart. And people who are into the world system are doing everything they can to try to keep it from falling apart. Save the rainforest. Save this. Save that. We're saving everything but ourselves by turning to Christ. And how stupid that it is. And so what the Bible says, this is all temporary. I was listening to an interview this past week that I thought was great. Bryant Gumbel interviewing Muhammad Ali. What is so funny about that? That was a great interview. And let me tell you why. Because this is what basically the, the, the bottom line of all of it was. Bryant Gamble said this. He said, for 25 years, you've enjoyed wine, women, and song. What's your thoughts? What's your thoughts on that today as you look back? Listen to this. You know what he said? He said, it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. You know what he's saying? It's a soap bubble. That's what it is. It all looks so good at the time, and it popped and it's gone. 
and he lived, he lives today with the consequences of many of his actions of the past. You follow what I'm saying? Can you grasp this for a second? You know what he did? He took the bait and the hook was set. And that's not to hammer him, but as much to use what he has learned from it to help us to learn the same thing. The lore is thrown out. We're enticed by our own lusts. We go after the bait. The hook is set. And the consequences are death. Do you understand that? Do you understand how serious this really is? Do you understand how it will keep you from growing in your walk with God? When you buy into the lust of the flesh to please yourself at, 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 what, at the expense of everything that God has to say? Do you understand what it means to... to get sucked in by the lust of the eyes, to go after the appearance of something that never offers what it promises to offer? Do you understand what it means to be boastful and proud about who you think that you are and tomorrow you could be dead, this very moment you could die and have to appear before God? Do you realize how insignificant you really are? Do you realize all the great pharaohs and kings and rulers of this world who thought that they were big stuff at the time that they were around all ended up in the same place that all of us are going? Whether you're a king or a janitor, you're going to die and you're going to appear before God and give an account for your life. I mean, how hard is that to comprehend? The evidence is all around us. We just don't want to believe it because we're bombarded with a world system that keeps saying, hey, guess what? Buy into it. Buy into it. Buy into it. And it doesn't offer anything. It offers nothing. But you know what the amazing thing is? You know what God has to offer? It says, but the one who does the will of God will abide forever. The one who does the will of God will abide forever. And you know what? It boils down to very simply this. In this particular case, he's talking about something very specific. And that is not loving the world. The will of God in this context is that we do not love the world, nor the things in the world. That's the context. And so if you look at everything that we've learned so far, he who does the will of God, specifically not loving the world, because we abide in Christ, will live forever. That's what the Bible promises. So, but you know what? What a contrast. You can reject Christ. Listen to this. You can reject Christ in the life that he has to offer. You can love this world and the things of the world, but they're all temporary and they're going to fade away. Or you can accept Christ and the life that he has to offer. You can love God and not the world nor the things of the world. And guess what? And you abide forever. Now, listen, you don't need a Ph.D. to know which is the better deal. The evidence is all there. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you love his word and not the world? And the Bible says that you'll abide forever. That's a great deal, particularly in a recession. <laughs> That's a great deal. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for the clarity in which you present uh, your word, the clarity that uh, you offer us as far as the choices that we have. And essentially, there's two choices. We can love the world or we can love the word. We can love you or we can love the world that we live in. It doesn't seem like much of a deal as you consider that this world is passing away. The evidence is overwhelming. And God, I appreciate what Jim Elliott had to say when he said that he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to obtain that which he can never lose. And yet, how appropriate that is in, what, in light of what we're talking about. 
God, help us to see that we have an enemy who is casting bait, lures, temptation before us on a regular basis. All with the promise, but the promise never delivers what it's supposed to. We live in a world that's dedicated to pleasing itself. We see it in pleasing our physical bodies. We see drug abuse. We see alcoholism. We see sexual diseases. We see AIDS. We see evidence of destruction in that lifestyle, and yet we continue to buy into it as if it offers something that, I, what, I don't know. We see it in the area of our acquisitions, of our purchases, of our material possessions. Bigger, better, newer, improved. God, my question is, it's so great, why do they keep having to sell something new? And you know why, because you tell us that our eyes are never satisfied. That if we're to be content, that we should be content in you. The Apostle Paul said that he had learned the secret of being content and that it was found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. David wrote in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He learned the secret of being content and it was found in a right relationship with God. Father, we see it in the pride of life. The Lord goes out. We think that we're more important than we really are. We buy into it. We compromise to attain a status that the world has to offer, only to find out that that ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. You tell us we have two choices, to love the world or to love the Word. God, help us to be people, men and women, who love the Word and will abide by it. And we look forward to the fact that you promise us not only life after we die with you, but an abundant, joyful life as we go through a world that's in hostility to you. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.